This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Tuesday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, anything that's going on in your heart or mind. We'll do the best we can to direct you directly to the Word of God. Um, all you have to do is call us, whatever is on your mind, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Send them to us that way. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340 340- 9585. Hope you're having a great day. Hope you're being safe out there. Uh, we're praying for our city. Um, it's a crazy world that we live in. I woke up to Paula this morning. I said, I'm getting back to that place where it's hard to remember what day of the week it is. And uh, I just think it's uh, sort of a groundhog day world for a while now. Um, you pray for us and we'll keep praying for you. I don't have anything to announce on a Tuesday, so let's get right to our questions. The first question is from Oliver. He says, how often should we take communion? Oliver, there's no restriction about how often we should take it. Jesus said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that's obviously Paul who's quoting Jesus, but Jesus said that. Uh, So as often as you get together. So do it uh, as you feel led by the Lord to do it. Now, uh, I know churches that uh, literally have their sanctuaries open every day um, for morning prayer meetings and things and communion. The elements are available. I know other churches that do it every Sunday. Uh, At our church, Calvary Chapel, Oliver, we uh, partake of communion on the first Sunday of the month, which is coming up, by the way. This is the last day in June, I think, last day in June. So uh, we do it on the first Sunday of the month. And the reason we do it once a month is we just don't want people to get so used to taking that it becomes um, something they do um, just by by ritual or repetition. We, We want it to be meaningful, and we think as a church family, 
to take it once a month is is plenty of time. Now, all of our families often take them at home. You can you can partake of the communion elements with your family at home. So it's not a matter of how often. It's just to make sure that when you do, it's not something you're just doing because, well, that's what you do. Do it because you're really remembering the Lord's death and you're looking forward to his soon return. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it very, very much. Let's take our first phone call today. We've got Charles calling from San Antonio on line one. Charles, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Papa Ron. How you doing? Charles, I'm doing well. How are you and Laura doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. Laura's hanging in there. Um, okay. <clears throat> they just did, they're doing some more uh, stuff to her. They had to... Uh, they got on the ventilator, but they got it as best uh, power as they could on it. Uh, okay. But her lung, uh, her O2 uh, kept going down, so they're trying some different things where they're trying to lay her on her stomach to get the pressure off her lungs to see if that'll open her lungs up. But uh, she's she's uh, fighting it. Okay, well, we're we're praying, so keep us informed. Oh yes, and I appreciate Mama's Paula, Mama Paula's call for me earlier. That that uh, that made my day. So I oh, hope good. you're doing well. I heard about you know you and Mama Paula, so I hope y'all get well as well. And Thank I you, will Charles. be partaking on Sunday online. Uh, I'm gonna okay. watch the the service. Good. I, I love the study on Sunday and the fact that it's communion while I'll be missing everybody in person. Um, um, it's great to be able to say to the family, knowing everybody's got the elements at home and that we will be partaking together. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, you know, we all know people that have been affected by this thing and we need to continue in prayer. It affects some people um, harder than it does others. Um um, for me and for Paula, we're doing great. Uh, I was out running and exercising today, and I, I came home and told Paula, I said, wow, this is much better than yesterday. Um, so uh, we're, we're doing fine, and I appreciate everybody who's praying. Thanks very, very much. Our next question comes from Randy, and it's another communion question. He says, is it okay to take grape juice instead of real wine for communion? Randy, of course it is. You know, in churches, um, at least most churches, um, we, we use grape juice or some form of juice um, simply out of sensitivity to those who who uh, do not take alcohol or who should not be drinking alcohol. But But it is. You see, remember, that's the value of this being symbolic. Um, it doesn't matter really what you take. As long as you're, as you're taking the juice, you're remembering the blood that set you free from sin. So it's perfectly fine to take grape juice instead of real wine. And for those of you who partake using real wine, that's acceptable as well. Just remember um, the significance of the gift. God died so that we wouldn't. We have victory over the last enemy. The last enemy, Paul says, is death. And it's because Jesus shed his blood for us. And um, yes, it's perfectly okay to take grape juice instead of real wine for communion. Um, You know, Randy, there's a song, and I've talked about this on this program before, uh, by Crystal Lewis. It's an old song now, but it's called The Bloodstained Pages. And what I really like to do when I'm partaking of communion, and um, it's, it's harder 
for me because I'm administering communion, I'm speaking at the same time, but I like to remember the fact that that in the, in the book with my name on it, um, not the Lamb's Book of Life, but the book of my life, there's all kinds of accusations against me. Every single one of them is true. I'm guilty of everything that God asked me or, or that, that was written in that book. You know, the enemy accuses us night and day before the throne of God. But Crystal Lewis's song talked about how every page is stained with the blood of the lamb that was shed. And it's impossible to make out the charges or the accusations against me. So the only conclusion that Jesus can come to is that I'm innocent of all charges. That's what I love so much about communion. Um, A guilty man has been declared completely innocent of all the charges. Here is our next question. It comes from Isaac. He says, is there any special reason that Jesus chose Peter, James, and John to be in his inner circle? Um, Isaac, we're always on dangerous, slippery ground when we talk about why Jesus did something. Now, here's what we know. He only did what he saw his father do. Now, you remember many, many times Jesus would go out all night long and um, um, hear from his father. That, That was his time to get away from everything. And we know that he only did what he saw his father do. He only said what he heard his father say. And so we know that he chose Peter, James, and John to be the inner circle because that's what God the Father told him to do. Jesus was always obedient, and that came out of all-night prayer. Now, we might think that if he was really hearing the Father's voice and 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 uh, seeking the Lord, uh, seeking his Father's will, that he could have come up with a better choice, certainly than Peter. Peter's the one who ended up denying him. But that's what makes the choice of them so special. Now, I have my own theory. I can't prove it. But, Isaac, I think that Peter, James, and John are the ones that were the closest to Jesus. Jesus said, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I think his inner circle sort of chose themselves. The Apostle John, the youngest of all of the disciples, he's the one who indicated that uh, he he called himself self-proclaimed title. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had a relationship with Jesus that was closer than any of the others. And he experienced it every single day. And because he loved Jesus so much, Jesus brought him in closer. Uh, For James, we don't know a whole bunch about him personally, other than he was um, uh, combustible in terms of his attitude. He was one of the two sons of thunder. Uh, And Peter, of course, we know uh, all about Peter personally, his character. And yet these were the ones that simply seemed so deeply touched by Jesus' life and ministry that they didn't want to be separated from him. So, Isaac, that's the only reason I know the Father told him to. Jesus did it. And those are the three that drew the closest to Jesus. Um, It wasn't a matter of trust. It wasn't a matter of they were more spiritual. It was simply a matter that they were the ones who were the closest to the Lord. 
340-9585. We love your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Daryl. He wants to know, why does the Bible condone slavery? Daryl, it doesn't condone slavery at all. Um, I'm going to be teaching on this this coming Sunday at the beginning of of First uh, Timothy chapter 6. But the idea here is that the Bible reports on slavery, but it doesn't condone slavery. Daryl, there's something else that we need to remember here. That slavery in Bible times had nothing to do with race at all. It was only about economic status. Slavery in the Roman Empire was a fact of life. In fact, slavery has been a fact of life throughout the history of the world. Now, God says in 1 Timothy that um, men stealers, that's what he calls slave traders, um, are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So God doesn't condone slavery, he condemns it. It is a sin to enslave another human being regardless of what your reason is. And if, in fact, um, the Bible didn't talk about slavery, um, then it would be disingenuous because it was just a fact of life. People could be born into slave families. They could be born uh, into rich families and lose it all. And maybe they were, were irresponsible financially, They'd get in debt, and they would sell themselves into slavery to avoid going to prison. There were a lot of reasons that there were slaves, but every single one of them there had to do with economic status. It wasn't race, it wasn't black and white, it wasn't African or European. It was just about economics. And again, the Bible doesn't condone slavery. And that is sort of a a sophomoric uh, excuse that some people use. Well, I'm not going to follow a Jesus that condones slavery. He doesn't. He condemns it at every turn. But again, it reports on slavery because that is a fact of life. And we need to understand that. Because if you don't understand that, then you have no value that comes from applying the passages in the Bible that talks about slaves. We would love it, Daryl, if in fact the Bible said, if you are a slave, run away. If you're a slave owner and you get saved, set your slaves free. But that wasn't the world that they lived in. And again, I want to emphasize it was not a race issue at all. And in fact, some of God's harshest words in the Old Testament were for Jews who enslaved other Jews simply because they could. So the Bible does not condone slavery. It condemns it. And um, tragically, in, in... our history as a nation, uh, there have been those false teachers, those who simply wanted to do what they wanted to do and, and, and misused out of context the Bible to justify having slaves. Truth is, we are all slaves. We're slaves to sin. And then when we give our heart to Jesus, we're slaves to righteousness. We don't get a chance not to be slaves. We like to think we're free, but the man or the woman who is at least proclaims their freedom from God, they're not free from sin. They're embroiled in sin. And that's where they're going to be stuck in, apart from receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I hope that answers your question. When people ask you that question, um, 
just look at them and say, you know what, if you really want to find out what the Bible says, why don't you read it for yourself? Instead of just repeating what you've heard other people say. Here is a question from Peter. He said, what does it mean in Exodus 32 that God changed his mind? Um, Peter, uh, the, the, the technical term is anthropomorph- anthropomorphism. It's a hard word for me to say. Um, and, and it simply means where you're trying to use human language to describe an infinite God. Our language is finite. We're trying to use finite language to describe an infinite God. We know that God doesn't change his mind because God knows the end from the beginning. But here's what's happening in Exodus 32. Now, you remember, the Jews have just um, been caught in a golden calf ceremony. Moses has been on the mountain. You know, the, the, the leader's away and the and the, the people are, are impatient and they turn from the God that Moses has introduced them to to a God of their own making, a golden calf. And even Aaron, Moses' brother, was led astray. I, I threw gold in and this mold and this calf came out, uh, which we know wasn't true. Lamest excuse, by the way, in the history of the world. So um, what they were doing, that Moses had been gone 40 days, and they couldn't wait, so they made their own God. Instinctively, we all know there's something out there. They made their own God, and God told Moses, go back down, your people. And Moses said, what, what do you mean my people? This was a lifelong process and with, with between God and Moses. Uh, your people, Moses. And Moses would say, they're not my people, they're your people. And, and God was using Moses as a type of Christ, an intercessor. And so when God would say something like, I'm sorry that I even made them, uh, I'm, I'm going to destroy them. Well, Moses would take over his intercessor and say, well, 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 Lord, for your name's sake, you're the one who made these promises. For your name's sake, you can't desert your people. You can't destroy your people. At one point, God even said, Moses, uh, you go. I'm going to destroy these people, and then you go, and I'll make you a great name. And I'll start all over with you. You can be in charge. And Moses said, well, if you're not going, God, I'm not going. So it's not that God changed his mind. It's what God was doing was changing the heart of Moses. And Moses would intercede for the people, and God would get what he wanted all along, a a man who could stand in the gap. So he didn't change his mind. It's not like God was surprised by all of the sin in uh, the camp. It's just that God needed an intercessor, an advocate, who would plead the case of those who had fallen out of favor with God. Good question. I like that question. There's a lot of wealth there in in the, the book. Let's go to Cindy calling on line one from San Antonio. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I'm so glad that you and Mama Paula aren't being beaten down with this virus. I was beyond... Shocked, sad, and and everything when when I first heard that you'd had it. Yeah, thank I, you, um, Cindy. I, actually, the truth is, I, I feel a little guilty that um, other people are being hit harder than we are, um, <laughs> but we're doing we're doing fine. Thank you. Well, I guess that says something for going to the gym, huh? You know, um, Cindy, if you'll just wait just a second, I'm going to take a chance to to really share my heart here. Um. I can't tell you what a difference it makes to be healthy when something like this happens. Uh, Paula is an exercise nut. I hate every minute of it, but I do it 
because I've got to stay strong. I've got to be healthy to serve the Lord. And um, if if uh, you know my story, Cindy, three years ago when when I had a, a, a really weird thing happen in my heart, um, the doctor said if I wasn't in such good shape, I wouldn't have made it. And um, I'm convinced we're we're kind of sailing through this thing because we're continuing to exercise. Our doctor keeps saying, uh, keep exercising, do what you can. Don't overdo it, but do what you can. And we've been exercising and um, we're able to, to deal with it. So please, everybody in the audience, stay healthy. Okay, Cindy, sorry for taking your time. Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad you said that. It makes me want to kind of get out there and do something. Look, there's a script. There's two verses. One of them I pretty much understand. The other one I'm really not sure about. I'm going to read them both. The one I'm not sure about I'll read first. It's in Proverbs 20, verse 30. It says, Blows and wounds cleanse away evil, and beatings purge the innermost being. Okay, now that one I was kind of wondering what's going on with that. And then the one that I pretty much understand is... Uh, Proverbs 21, verse 17, it says, He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. And I understand the wine part, but I was kind of curious about the oil part. So I'll leave Mm -hmm. those two. And and again, I am so thrilled that that you're doing the show, too. I love you guys. Thank you, Cindy. Before you you hang up, Cindy, what was it? Oh, you got the verse? Okay. Uh, Sam got the, my producer got the verse. So uh, I didn't hear the verse in the second one, chapter 21, but he's got it. So let me go. Uh, Now, remember, in Proverbs, um, these are a series of of wise sayings. They're they're not to be taken uh, literally. We don't, they're, they're poetic in value. We don't make doctrine out of them. But it's just sort of um, um, a machine gun effect of wisdom. And when he talks about the, in the verse before in, in Proverb 20, the glory of young men is their strength, gray hair is the splendor of the old. We know that's generally true, but it's not always true. The same thing is true the verse you asked about. Blows and wounds cleanse away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. What God is saying there is that there needs to be punishment for willfulness, for sin. And when we deal with consequences, and in the ancient world, the blows and wounds were literal. They're more figurative for us. Beatings certainly are literal. But what he's talking about is when people are um, guilty of sin, uh, they need to be punished. And punishment is designed by God to bring the sinner to repentance. So that's what he's saying. When you um, um, uh, wound somebody, when you beat somebody, uh, they're going to have to deal with the fact of their sin. Uh, in the second one, Proverbs 21, verse 7. Um, 17. 17, I'm sorry, 17. Let me get down there. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. Um, that's one, Cindy, that we actually can watch happen in the very culture that we live in. Um, you know, I, my story is, is um, um, you know, we, Paul and I together, uh, I was disowned by my, my dad, um, uh, couldn't keep a job because back then being an interracial couple was a lot different than it is now. We started with absolutely nothing. I mean, nothing. Our, our son, Ronnie, was born, and um, when they'd come to evict us from a hotel room that we were staying in. We had to put our hand over his mouth a little to keep him from crying because we were pretending like we weren't there. We had nothing. 
And I worked really, really hard, and I became really, really successful. And the idea here is if your focus is pleasure, I might also add success. If you focus on that, you're eventually going to become poor. And it happened to me literally. But for everybody, spiritually and emotionally, that's happened. You know, if you, you, you serve the wrong master, you're going to end up a slave to that master. When the second part of it, when he says, whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich, that's the guy uh, or the woman who's pretending. You know, you, you, your, your joy comes from drinking, or we might use drugs in our culture. Um, the oil is an idea. I'm going to make myself look good and look better and smell better. Um, but the truth is, you're not fooling anybody. If you're miserable, you're miserable, and everybody knows it. And, and you know, the, the real value of this for us is that uh, Solomon was the wisest man that's ever lived on the earth. None before him, none after had that kind of wisdom. It was wisdom given to him by God. And I can almost see um, Solomon just just rattling off all of these pearls of wisdom and his uh, um, scribe is writing them down and everybody's just sort of shaking their head at the wisdom that's coming out of his mouth. We need to pay attention to the Psalms, to the Proverbs, to Ecclesiastes, to the book of Job, the poetic books. There is a lot of wisdom, but we need to understand them for what they are. And it's the principle in the proverb that really um, is there for us to apply. Cindy, thank you. It's good to hear your voice. This has been the first half of our program today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. We'd love to have your calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to our second 30 minutes of the program today we'd love your live calls and questions at 340-9585 i just got a a bulletin um, that i looked at during the break um, <laughs> I'm still laughing at. Um, th- there's actually a movie being made about the Jesus movement, which Calvary Chapel, of course, was at the vanguard. Pastor Chuck, um, Chuck Smith, our, my pastor, um, who is now with Jesus. Uh, he was the man that God used. Greg Laurie, who is uh, on this radio station uh, with his teaching. Uh, and uh, sort of uh, created the Harvest Crusades uh, and is well-known throughout our nation. They're going to be the two main characters. And the reason I'm laughing is because uh, the, the, I don't know the, the, the actor who's playing Greg Laurie, who was young, very young at the time, he was 19 when he got saved and started teaching the Bible. Uh, Pastor Chuck was in his um, mid to late 40s, uh, when the Jesus movement started, uh, 
And um, the the person playing Pastor Chuck is the comedian Jim Gaffigan. And I just, because I know Chuck so well, I'm, I'm really having a hard time with, with figuring out how that's going to do it. So um, when that movie comes out, we'll be sure to talk about it. It's a great movie subject. I mean, it was the last revival in the world. Um, uh, I mean, it, it, the last powerful move of God's Spirit. So we'll wait and see what it's going to be all about. Well, we'll wait for your calls. Here's a question from Rodney. Pastor Ron, in 2 Kings 20, God added 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Why would he do that? Um, Rodney, again, there's one of those questions. Why would God do something? He always had a plan. It was part of his plan. He knew he was going to do it. But you remember the Hezekiah, who, by the way, was a good king. Um, I really enjoyed our study through Isaiah. In fact, it's so important. We've got Hezekiah's life in Isaiah. We've got Hezekiah's life in 2 Kings and in, in the Chronicles. Um, and he got sick and he sent a prophet, uh, sent for a prophet to inquire of God. Am I going to die from this illness? And God said, yeah, you are. And uh, Hezekiah, who didn't have a son at that time, um, indicated that, well, well, who am I going to turn it over to? And he, he basically pleaded with God for a son and God gave him 15 extra years. Now we would think what a great gift from God that was, but that son, Manasseh, was the worst king in Israel's history. The worst king in Israel's history. Now, he repented at the very end, and he's going to be in heaven. But it was the worst 15 years that Israel could have experienced because of the wickedness of his son Manasseh. To show sometimes the apple does far fall from the tree. And while Hezekiah who was a good king, he served God. He wasn't perfect. Certainly he had problems in his life, but he was a, a, a man whose heart was really for the Lord. He took his responsibility as the king seriously, and um, God simply gave him the desire of his heart. Remember, it was God who put that desire in there. So he did it, and in somehow that we can understand when we're dealing with his sovereignty, God's sovereignty, it fit the perfect will of God, and it happened as it was. So God clearly doesn't answer our prayers like that. Um, you know, somebody's really sick. Give him 15 more years, Lord. Um, you know, I, I'm convinced that we're all going to find out that God protected us from a lot and he preserved us from from natural consequences. Um, but uh, remember, it wasn't a surprise to God. God knows the moment, the hour, everybody's going to die. But the fact of the matter is, is if God hadn't intervened, the illness that Hezekiah had would have killed him. Good question. Here's an anonymous question. Jesus calmed the sea and the storm with his disciples. I keep praying that we calm the storms that we're going through right now. Anonymous, that's a prayer that millions of Christians are joining you in every day. But here's what we really need to understand that Jesus calmed the sea in the storm when he was in the boat with disciples. Remember, he was asleep. They thought he was going to die. And Jesus came out and said, peace, be still. And instantly everything calmed down. Um, Jesus did that because it was a teaching moment for his disciples. It was a very specific moment. 
And the rest of Scripture mitigates against us having any expectations that that's going to happen. Jesus never promised for you and for me that he would take the storms of life away from us. What he did us, promise us is that he would be with us every second that we're in those trials, that we're in the storms. And you're right, we're in some storms now. Our world is absolutely going crazy. Not um, only that, of course, but now we... Uh, we're, we're dealing with a reoccurrence of this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, we all want things to return to normal. We all want things um, that will be uh, smooth sailing. But Jesus says smooth sailing doesn't really teach us a lot. And right now he's using this, especially this pandemic, to cause people to look to him. Anonymous, we live, I think, uh, I've been a Christian only 29 years. But but I believe that in my 29 years, this is the ripest anyone has been to hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason, the reason is because people are afraid. And they're afraid. And so what do they do? They call out to a God they don't even know. And we who are believers, instead of thinking about our own safety, we need to be available to the Lord to say, okay, Lord, use me. And that's why it's so harmful, it's so dangerous when we, because of fear, just sort of curl up and hide away from everything, hoping that this thing goes away. We still have ministry opportunities. Acts chapter 17 says that God created us all where we are, when we are, because this is the time it's easy for us to find God, to find God's will for our lives, and to convince others about their need for Him. And so when we withdraw, when we are so fearful and we're we're controlled by our fear, then the rest of the world doesn't see our light. We need to learn to be light in good times and in bad times. So you can keep praying that he would calm the storms that you're in, that we're all in anonymous, but it would be much better and I think more fruitful if what you would pray is, Lord, give me peace in the storm. Give me focus. Give me ministry opportunities in the storm. And I can promise you that he will do it. It's just not realistic to believe that somehow things are going to get better and, and uh, you know, we're not going to have to deal with this stuff. Asking God for a, a, an easy life or a trouble-free life has certainly never been part of his will. You know, I do a study, Anonymous, where I talk about the storms of life and the purpose. Some of them are corrective. We, we cause our own difficulties, sort of self-inflicted wounds. But, but most storms are instructive. It gives God a chance to show off for us. And through us at times. And then the result is that we get to to see the hand of God move on our behalf. And our faith grows. But if our focus is getting out of the storm, that's when we find ourselves in trouble. One final comment on this anonymous. Read Daniel chapter 4. Chapter 3, I'm sorry. Uh, it's when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was thrown into the fire, in a fire that Nebuchadnezzar had 
turned up seven times hotter than the normal. And they were bound by a rope. They're throwing the fire. Of course, we'd say, oh, they're dead. And Nebuchadnezzar comes over. He goes, wait a minute. How many people did we throw in there? And they say, well, we three. Well, then why do I see four? And the fourth is like the Son of God. And remember, they were walking around the fire. The ropes had burned. And they were free. But all three of those young men stayed in the fire with Jesus. By the way, that was Jesus in the fire with them. Rather than escape the fire and be on their own. So being with Jesus in a trial, in a storm, is better than not being in the storm and being on your own. And that's where Daniel, uh, his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, what they decided to do. We're going to stay here and walk around with you, Lord. And and uh, when they emerged, they didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here's a question from Diane. Uh, in John chapter 5, verse 18, it says that they wanted to kill Jesus because he made himself equal to God. Was that a statement of his deity? Diane, you got it exactly right. Uh, when he claimed to be the Son of God, the people listening understood that he was making himself equal with God. That's what the blasphemy was. Uh, the blasphemy wasn't, you know, there were people that all the time, well, I'm a son of God or I'm a child of God. But he, but Jesus was was confirming his deity, and the the, the critics, the, those who were trying to kill him, um, they thought they had him. They tried to kill him. They planned to kill him because he made himself equal with God. For the people, Diane, that say Jesus never claimed he was God, he did it all the time, and the people listening to him understood that they got it, and because they got it. Um, um, that's when they hatched their plans to kill him. So you're absolutely right. That was Jesus uh, and his enemies, by the way, affirming that he was not only the Son of God, but he was God the Son. Here is a question from Jose. Will you share about Paul's trip to the third heaven? What is the third heaven? And how do we know it was Paul who went there? You know, in 2 Corinthians 12, Jose, uh, it, it's awkward in its sentence construction. Um, but Paul, who we know is the author of First and Second Corinthians, uh, Paul was talking in the third person. I know a man in Christ who about 14 years ago um, um, went to the third heaven. Um, and, and he was doing that because he was embarrassed to, the, to, to, to boast. Uh, he was defending in Second Corinthians, he's defending his ministry against those who were trying to, to uh, uh, say that, that he was speaking outside of his authority. And so Paul, in his defense, and he talks about it over and over in Second Corinthians, I must be crazy to be talking about like this. Normally when he boasts, he says, I boast in the Lord. But he says, I must go on boasting. And this is just part of that boasting. He said, I went to the third heaven. Now, the third heaven um, doesn't mean that there is a, a um, three levels of heaven as we understand heaven. What he's talking about there is just the atmosphere that we live in. Uh, the first heaven, uh, if I go out in the morning as I do every every morning and look in the eastern sky, I'm looking into the first heaven. What we can see with the naked eye. Um, the air that we breathe, when we go to the second heaven, we would call that outer space, or we do call that outer space, where we, we can't breathe, we're, we're weightless, gravity is gone. 
Um, um, we see that all the time when we send up astronauts to outer space. The third heaven is just a reference to the, the dwelling place of God, the abode of God, and it's beyond the first heaven, beyond the second heaven. So whatever's out there, beyond all of that that we can see and know, is a dwelling place of God, and that's what's referred to as the third heaven. You know, it's interesting, Jose, with all of the telescopes, they get more and more powerful. It started with the Hubble telescope, and now there's even more powerful telescopes. We see infinitely more than we ever knew was there before. We see black holes, and we see galaxies, and we keep discovering all these things, and and all because of the majesty of God's creation. And we get these powerful telescopes and we're constantly amazed at what we think we're discovering when in fact it's what God has already created. Well, Paul's point is that beyond everything that you'll ever see, well, that's where God lives. And one day, Jose, we're going to be there. One day soon, I think, as believers, I think very soon we're going to be in that very place where we stand before the Lord in all of his glory. And we see that face shining like the sun in all of its brilliance. And again, the Father is spirit. He doesn't have a body like Jesus does. We're going to see him. We're going to see the Holy Spirit. How do you see a spirit? But we're going to be there. And just like Paul, we're going to find out it's the best place to be. To die is better by far, he wrote to the church at Philippi, but to live is Christ. I don't know what I should do. I'm torn between the two. And it's almost like the Holy Spirit said, we're not done with you yet. You go back. And that's what he understood. So, Jose, that's what happened in Paul's trip to the third heaven. And by the way, for everybody out there, Paul said that he saw inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. Think about that the next time you're reading a book or seeing a movie about some Christian who claims that he or she died and went to heaven. I'm going to tell you all the things they saw. Next time you're listening to some false teacher and he's telling you about his trip to heaven and seeing his mansion, and we know it's not true because the Bible says man is not permitted to speak of such things. Let's go to... A caller just called. Yesterday, caller Janet asked, what to you is the most remarkable prophecy fulfilled by Jesus while he was alive? Could you elaborate on the prophecy that you referred to, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry? Um, yeah, caller, I can. Uh, it's what we celebrate literally every Palm Sunday. Um, April 6, 32 AD, according to the widely accepted scholarship of Sir Robert Anderson, um, was the day that, that we call Palm Sunday. And it was the very day that the Messiah had to appear for the very first time and publicly declare himself to be the king. That's why he came in riding the donkey, the, uh, a foal that had never been ridden. And because it had to be that day, it was almost as though there was this countdown um, and, and everybody knew, you know, on that particular Palm Sunday, um, the crowds were there for the uh, Passover, which would be a week later um, um, or later in the week. But they were there early because they knew, Jews knew that Jesus would be 
or, or that the Messiah, the Christ, would be revealed. And they were excited about it. That's why there were donkeys tied up all over Jerusalem. When Jesus said to his disciples, two of them, he said, go get me a donkey and, and you'll find one tied up. And the owner says, uh, what are you doing with my donkey? And the Lord needs them. Everybody would have been happy. They wanted their donkeys to be chosen by the Lord. Everybody knew the prophecy from Zechariah. So uh, it had to be that day, one day earlier, one day later, and it would have been a false prophecy. And, and thus Jesus would have proven himself not to be the one he claimed to be. Now, in terms of detail, um, in um, March of 445 B.C., um, the order... Nehemiah chapter 2, to rebuild um, Jerusalem was given. And from that moment, the countdown began. And then there were 383 years, um, um, 77s, which, which, I'm sorry, 483 years, uh, 77s, but we know from Daniel chapter 9 that when the Messiah came, at the end of the, the 483 years, the Messiah would be cut off with nothing. And then there's going to be a time, we call it grace, um, uh, that we, we've been in now for 2,000 years. Now, if you take a Jewish calendar of 360-day years, that's 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree from Nehemiah chapter 2, um, March of 40, between March and April of 445 um, B.C., according to our calendar, um, if you count down those 173,880 days, then it comes in um, exactly the day that Jesus had to be declared the Christ. Now, they didn't like that it was Jesus. The crowds were excited because they knew the Christ was coming, and there were indeed many who thought it would be Jesus because of the miracles he'd done, the way that he taught. But because of what he taught, most Jews, and certainly the religious leaders, didn't want any part of him. And of course, by that time, they'd already planned to kill him, and that's what Jesus' final week, his Passion Week on Earth, began. But um, that was the prophecy, and for me, that's remarkable. When you think of, of... uh, all of those centuries going by, and all of a sudden, here he comes at exactly the right time, just when people were expecting him. It's, it just couldn't be any more clear that he was the Christ, the Messiah. So thanks for um, calling in the question. Let's go to line one, talk with Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, I'm glad you're back. Thank you, Jimmy. That's all I wanted to say. Oh, Jimmy, God bless you. You are so sweet. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, I, you know, I got nothing to do. I might as well do the radio show, huh? <laughs> we're going to, um, we're, we're going to be dark this week. I'm going to teach Sunday. Um, I know nobody asked, but I'm just sharing this with you. I'm going to teach Sunday, live stream like I was. Uh, and then next week, we're kind of waiting to see what's going on with our positive tests and, and what the, the, the governors that be are going to do. Um, but next week, I'm going to go back to doing also Wednesday and Friday night studies uh, online as well. So uh, this week, we're just going to get through. We got through last week and get through this week um, with the live stream message. 
And then uh, uh, we'll get back as soon as we can as a church, as soon as we're permitted to, and as soon as it is safe to do it. Okay, we got uh, four minutes left in the program, so what do we got here? Uh, George says, my friend says that if God really wanted all men to be saved, they would be. How do I respond? Well, George, you know, uh, your, your, your friend has run into a Calvinist doctrine that says God's will is irresistible. We know that's not true. We know it's not true for salvation. Uh, he is the Savior of all men, but especially or effectively for those who believe. Um, he's unwilling that any should perish. Um, Peter describing his patience, why he hasn't come yet. Um, but but the Bible can't be any clearer that God wants all men to be saved. Now, the question about God's sovereignty that we have to deal with is simple. Why aren't all men saved if God wants them? Well, it's because we resist his will. You know when Paul says, uh, do not quench the Holy Spirit. That's a p- proof text that we can resist the will of God. And the truth is, George, in our lives, we all we have to do is look at the times we resist the will of God. God wants us to do something. We don't do it. That's resisting the will of God. So this whole doctrine, Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace, is, is nonsense. It's harmful. And it misrepresents God. When God says, For God so loved the world, that whosoever believes in him, would not perish but have everlasting life. He means everybody. When Peter said that God wants all men to be saved, but he's patient, unwilling that any are lost. Then we got to take the word. I mean, it's as literal and as clear as it can possibly be. So just show him your Bible and tell him to stop reading it through a Calvinist lens or systematic theology of Calvinism lens. Just don't let them do that. So it's um, Calvinism, George. They're Christians. This friend of yours is a brother. Um, But he's just wrong, and and Calvinism is really, really hard. Here's our last one for the day. Anonymous says, It seems to me like the only reason for becoming a Christian is the fear of going to hell. What if I don't believe in hell? Well, Anonymous, if you don't believe in hell, then you, you make that choice at your own peril. The fact that you don't believe it doesn't mean it's true. The Bible says over and over and over, Jesus himself talks about hell a lot. And for you not to believe in hell, go to Revelation, the great white throne judgment, the lake of fire. That's what hell is. And you can say, well, I don't believe in it, but but you're denying what the Bible says so clearly that you have to be in denial to believe it. The fact that you believe in something or don't believe in something doesn't make you immune to having to deal with it. So honestly, Anonymous, open your Bible, read what it says. You have to decide whether or not the Bible is truly the Word of God or it's just a list of suggestions or stories. But if the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible clearly talks about an internal torment. You better deal with that, because if you don't, the consequences will be forever and ever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630, The Word, at 4 o'clock. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.